And we are live. Welcome, everyone, to Connected Learning TV. This is the kickoff webinar in a month-long series titled Reclaim Open Learning, Learning by Everyone for Everyone, and it's going to be a live one today. I'm Howard Reingold, and I'll be the host today. Throughout March, we'll be catching up with various winners from the 2013 Reclaim Open Learning Innovation Challenge to talk about their recent successes and challenges and to hopefully inspire similar-minded practitioners within the connected learning and open learning communities. Today, we'll be talking with a couple of leaders from Digital Storytelling 106, better known as DS106, sometimes known as hashtag DS106, and always known as the legendary DS106, an open online learning community that grew out of a university course. But uh, before we dive into our chat, let's go over a few quick details. To those participating on live stream right now, please use the text chat there to introduce yourself, connect with each other, and ask questions that we can address here in the Google Hangout. We are also chatting throughout the month in the Connected Learning Google Plus community and via the hashtag ReclaimOpen, one word, on Twitter. The links for those uh, should be in the live stream chat. The link for our public group notes Google Doc for today should also be in the live stream chat by now. Please help us capture highlights, and, and with these two, I know we're going to have some, and share resources related to today's conversation. That uh, Google Doc will remain open to the public, so we can continue adding to it even after today. I'd like to give Jim and Alan a chance to briefly introduce themselves. So, Alan, why don't you start? All right. Thanks a lot, Howard. It's great to be here. And, and I just have to say again, that's the best shirt on the Internet. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm Alan Levine. I'm coming to you from my home in the metropolis of Strawberry, Arizona. You might have to look it up. And uh, for the last three years, I've been doing some freelance work and uh, part-time teaching. And uh, I'm a happy uh, citizen of the open and free web and like to do what I can to uh, champion it. And uh, somehow it's been like 20 years since I first uh, clicked that first mosaic link, and it, it changed my life completely. Hey, Jim. Yep. I'm Jim Broom. Uh, I'm the director of teaching and learning technologies at the University of Mary Washington. And um, I'm actually, you know, framed out. I'm here in the what we call the EdTech Nerve Center in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And we've been actually experimenting around uh, not only DS-106, obviously, but around, like Alan said, the open web and how that becomes the basis and the premise uh, for teaching and learning in our campus. And it's been a lot of fun. So I, I suspect that, that many of the people who are uh, monitoring this right now and who will see it later are uh, know a lot about DS-106, and I hope that we can get into some of the how-to and, and why-to stuff. But for those who might be hearing about DS-106 for the first time, could you give us a brief history of how the course evolved from a college course into what it is today? Yeah, I'll, I'll, do, I'll take you back to, like, the beginnings, and then I'll hand it off to Alan when we actually really opened it up. So DS-106 was actually called CPSC-106, Computer Science 106, and it was a digital storytelling class 
that I got and had been taught once before um, by another faculty member, and they asked anyone in DTLT if they wanted to teach it. So I decided to teach it, and I taught it um, twice uh, as a face-to-face -face class, 25 students, trying to just figuring out what the class could be. My idea behind it is I didn't want it to be the kind of more traditional storytelling of like, here's your six-minute video with your favorite song with a series of kind of images, and maybe you were riding the bike for the first time, you scraped, and you scraped your knee, and then you were sad, and you cried, and then maybe your dad or your mom picked you up, and then that was your story. You spent all semester writing this kind of big, you know, exegesis on this one time you fell down to get at some kind of deep, you know, issue that you have emotionally. Now, obviously I'm oversaying it, but the idea was that was a kind of storytelling, and it kind of, it really kind of taken over. Like, when you talked about digital storytelling, people think about iMovie, six minutes, favorite song, Ken Burns effect, and I was like, well, digital storytelling comes in all sorts of forms, and you know, I follow Brian Alexander, so I always see how he plays around with the idea of micro-blogging, you know, tweeting, tweeting as a story, blogging as an ongoing narrative of who you are. So I was thinking of DS106 from the beginning is, how does the work of storytelling happen across various media, and how do we do it as actually part of narrating who we are on the web as part of our process. So I wanted to make digital storytelling seem far more quotidian and everyday as a part of what it means to be online and narrate who you are. And that's when Martha Burtis, Alan Levine, and Tom Woodward, we all got together and we said, you know what, what would it mean to take DS106 and make it an open course, an open invitation course that we brought people in? And thankfully, people like Alan and Martha um, had far better ideas than I could ever come up with and actually made this thing kind of explode in some ways on the web. Hmm. But you had, you know, even in those first two semesters that you taught it, I mean, that's what intrigued me is the idea of students publishing in their own space uh, publicly so we could <laughs> see. And that, that's what led um, people to sort of say what would be, and it was in the frame of things that were going on with the early MOOCs uh, that the Canadians were doing, uh, to say what would happen to this course uh, could be where you still had your students at Mary Washington, but you allowed other people to choose and participate and, and overlap. And uh, the beauty of it was when you know Jim kind of he blogged it as as say what what if this would happen? And um, because he has you know a good network, um, you know, people it, it resonated within uh, you know probably compared to the size of the internet, a small number of people, but people who came together at the right time. And you know the thing was, it wasn't really completely planned. I mean, like like a good story, as you're telling it, things happen that you didn't expect. So it wasn't on the table to have a radio station. And the assignment bank was an idea that just emerged. And that's been part of uh, a lot of the joy of being part of this is that um, just getting the right people, not even the right people. Sometimes it's the wrong people, but people with different ideas into the mix and contributing ideas. It's kind of like the magic soup that makes it all happen. I, I want to talk about the assignment bank in a minute because I think it's really the the, the, the practical application of actually in, in empowering learners to to start uh, being less passive and more uh, active in, in their learning. But um, you you had mentioned the first MOOCs that uh, Stephen Downs and George Siemens and Dave Cormier did. Um, would, would, how would you characterize the nature of DS-106 uh, as it's developed? Is the, is the label MOOC inaccurate in that regard? Uh, or is calling it an, an online learning community too vague? How would you 
How would you try to characterize that for people who've been following th these developments? I'll speak. I mean, I, I know Alan has ideas too, but I'll speak first into the idea that one of the the things that struck me immediately about the CCK08 or that early down Siemens and Cormier MOOC is the fact that they invited people and they opened it up and 2,000 people came, which at the time was really remarkable. And I don't think we ever had ideas that DS106 would be a huge, you know, 2,000 person affair, especially when we early taught it. But what I really liked is that they were aggregating everybody's narratives and blogs and all these different spaces into one central hub that people can kind of read, could experience. So the course was happening out in the open. It could happen, anyone around the world could kind of aggregate it. And I really have been doing a lot of work with people like Alan and at UMW with aggregation already. And this notion of the personal learning environment, the network around that was really intriguing. So the idea of taking a 25 person class and then opening it out to the web along the lines of the MOOC, but never having any kind of you know fantasies that it would be massive in any way. But the fact that you could bring that community out there back into the classroom and share around it, um, it was certainly informed by the MOOC, but it was also very much informed by Gardner Campbell's notion of giving students their own personal cyber infrastructure, giving them their own domain and web hosting, and having them figure out what it means to be a node on the web and to kind of inhabit the web and interrogate the, interrogate the web. So it was kind of the balance of those two ideas, I think, to some degree. And, I mean, we, we use the word MOOC like it's this entity we can define, and it's, you know, so, so yeah, there, there's things about DS-106, and especially the network structure was what, what really inspired us, but it's like, you know, like a zebra. I mean, we know what a zebra is. It's a species. We can, we can categorize it. You know, the things, and now, you know, there's so many going on right now, it's, it's getting hard to say. This is a MOOC. This is not a MOOC. So um, it, we used to play with it for a while. I put on the site like DS106. It's not a silly MOOC, um, and and it wasn't really serious. But you know there are things that were somewhat different that we saw. Um, and I, I I signed up for CCK10 CCK108 CCK08, and, and was part of it. And and the networking part was really brilliant. Uh, but the structure of the course was kind of traditional. It was a weekly you know it was a weekly presentation in something like Illuminate, and then people reflected with that in their blogs and on Twitter and their social space, but it was still kind of course-ish um, in, in a way, and, and what, you know, what we do in DS106, especially for the open participants, is not really driven by what happens in the classroom. So, um, you know, when I got to go to Mary Washington in 2012, you know, I got to see how Jim did in a classroom, and I got to do it myself, and there's the classroom experience and there's this overlapping uh, network experience, and and sometimes uh, they they overlap a lot. But you know, it's it's really for the open participants, it, it's it's quite different from being driven uh, by the regimen of the syllabus. Well, I think we'll all, uh, agree that labels are important in order for people to understand what this new thing is that's coming along. But I think more specifically, especially with DS106 you can understand it better by looking at what it does and I think that offering students the freedom to make up their own assignments and the and the technical support you, you provide for that is is one great way of, of seeing what the, the difference is. Um, can you talk about the assignment bank and how it came to be and and what it is and, and maybe uh, evangelize a little bit about other instructors uh, giving their students uh, 
power to make their own assignments. A very scary idea, but one that, that turns out to be extremely generative if you look at DS-106. It's because of Jim's assignments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the funny early stories I like to tell about the assignment bank is, you know, I came out when I first taught the class, like, you know, like Mel Brooks comes out in the history of the world, part one is Moses. Here's the great 20, bash, 10 assignments. Like, these were the 10 assignments that people had to do, and I was really proud of them. Like, video essays, you know, a sound effects story, and I was like, these are the 10 assignments. And one of the things I quickly realized, and Tom Woodward, who can be a kind of, you know, a cold shower uh, on a good day, was like, hey, you know, these probably aren't that good assignments, and your students could probably do better. So once I got over that ego burst, and I cried, and I listened to Morrissey, as I like to say, and just kind of, I actually started saying, you know, that's an interesting idea. The idea of maybe making a sound effect that people could submit to. And beyond that, because there's a lot of good ideas, but Martha Burris actually pulled out the duct tape and said, I'm going to make this thing with Google Docs and Feed WordPress, and actually built a prototype that worked that first open semester of uh, spring 2011, which was amazing. And that was the point, I agree with you, Howard, <clears throat> that was the point where I was like, this course is crazy. Because I didn't realize, A, that the students could submit such great assignments, because I was still skeptical, I still held on to my position of power. But I didn't realize once they did submit them and people started doing them, how much they would feel like co-collaborators and co-teachers. And that was an amazing moment for me in that class, and it was in February of 2011. Um, the, the radio station had come on. Uh, people had kind of started to really get into this class, but then the students figured out how that whole assignment bank works, and they started going crazy with it, and it was amazing to watch. And, the, I mean, the submission part is one thing, but the, the other part of the genius was the way uh, Martha Design and It Works now is that when students are already having their blogs feed into DS-106, so... Um, when they do Jim's uh, sound effects story, there's a tag they use in their blog post, and it means it automatically appears as an example under the assignments. So when you go to see, uh, you figure out what assignments am I going to do, well, this one has 20 examples. That's going to give me an idea of, and maybe something with 20 examples is a good assignment because a lot of people chose to do it. So that, that level of the syndication is a really powerful piece of it, and it's, it's, it's really integral to the way we teach it. It's not the whole thing. I mean, you know, when I teach it, you know, there might be something I want all my students to do because it is useful for, the, for the, all students to do something similar. And, but the freedom is, okay, now you get to pick five, or we have star ratings, so, you know, pick 20 stars worth. Um, and, and they seem to really you know, resonate with that. And, um, and, you know, we've made it a requirement that students have to add two assignments as part of their, their classwork, and that's, one day, you know, one way it's gotten to be about 600 uh, assignments in there. And, you know, some of them are pretty, honestly, some of them aren't great. And, uh, you know, before I taught a class, I would go through, and some of them work better as daily creates, and some of them are, are repeats. And, I mean, we don't really, you know, slice too many of them because it's good to have a good array of them. And, um, you know, we've tried to build ways that you can try to sort them because there's like 100-plus design assignments. So how do you know which one to do? I say just pick the random button. <laughs> Take a random assignment. That's right. Well, one of the cool things, too, I mean, riffing off what Alan's saying is, you know, one of the things I really loved about the assignment bank is you could introduce things that were kind of popular at the moment on the Internet, like variations on making a GIF, 
Um, an infographic. I just submitted something. Someone's, I got a spam email about a movie infographic for Mad Max, and I loved it. So I just submitted an assignment last night about what would it mean to make an infographic about your favorite movie. Um, but the idea is that it's a place, a placeholder for cool things that people create on the web that they think is outside of any notion of learning. That's something you do as opposed to sit in a classroom and you know do the hard work. And I know a lot of people when we were teaching DS106, they're like, is that really like a class? Like, it sounds like people are having fun. They're making media. They're doing crazy things. They're saying things I'd never let them say, even in the open free world, on their blogs. And like, how do you kind of justify this as a class? And I think this class really, at least in the early vision of it, I thought I want it to be part and parcel of the popular culture that attracts us about the web. And I wanted to both be a part of that and interrogate that. And that was really important to me because I felt like, you know, for so long, all the culture that I like that's trash, people have told me, like, that's trash culture. But <laughs> like, I think that's the culture that so much of this kind of web right now is attracted to, like the big Lebowski and all the memes around that, or the Shining, or Jaws, or you name it, cats. I mean, I'm intrigued. By a course that can interrogate that, and you know, we had a, a an assignment, for example, called cat breading, where <laughs> people would actually pull their cat's face through a piece of bread, and this was an extremely popular assignment. And then you had to do that, and then take a picture of your cat, and then there was another riff on that that was a Russian site somewhere that was called the Fat Cat Assignment, where was you find a fat cat and you put it in a famous piece of art. And, like, you know, it'd be like, you know, Mona Lisa's holding a fat cat. And I know that people are like, you know, with Downs would always be like, this is not really. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, like, this is the web culture. This is what's different about the web that we refuse to acknowledge as academics. But and more, more, more oh, sorry, Jim. That. I mean, it's not about the fat cat. I mean, there's things that go on. I mean, you have to learn some things about. Uh, layering in your photo editor to do that and, and finding the right thing to match and then thinking about why am I pairing this particular cat with this particular piece of artwork. One of my favorite examples uh, came from Scott Lockman who I think is listening right now. Um, when he was teaching this course in Japan it was kind of a, a history of the internet course and he did this uh, assignment called Patty Pioneers and when I, when I say it it sounds silly but it was find a picture of a pioneer of the internet and put fast food in their hand. So this picture of, of Alan Kay with this cheeseburger that's like this thick and Doug Engelbart with french fries. So if I just stop there, that's just silly, right? But what happened was his students had to like research who these people were and, find, and learn about them. So it was kind of a, a gateway to something else. So it, it doesn't end with the, the silly, I mean, the, that's just a gateway to start thinking and recreating and you know what happened with the cat breading was it, it was silly you know it came from one of the students in the class and then people they mutated it because one of the philosophies is that you can interpret this assignment any way you want do the opposite so I think I turned I turned I made an assignment called Jim Groom breading so you put Jim Groom's face in, in a piece of bread and and the way the riffing works in DS106 is one of the, the magical elements too well you know I, I'm sure that uh, like me other uh, instructors out there who are very interested in doing open learning courses are envious of the fact that your subject matter is so intrinsically interesting to us and to students. It's it's a it's about you know popular 
culture and popular culture on the web, you think that the assignment bank could be adopted to subjects other than popular culture and popular culture on the web? I, I would love to to get my students to, to do more of making up their assignments, and I'm sure that there are others out there. Do you think that can be done? And 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 how? I think I have, a, <laughs> I have a solution for you. <laughs> what a setup, Howard, but I mean, the assignment bank is not about the kind of assignments that are in there. So, I mean, we built it specifically for DS-106. So it's organized around visual assignments, design assignments, uh, audio assignments. But basically, those are categories. Um, so, um, you know, we know that people have been interested in a while, and I've always had this um, dream that we could take what we did for DS-106, which is basically Martha and me and, and Tim, like, doing just enough to get the thing to work which is kind of how we roll with DS-106. Okay, I just fiddle that. Oh, I just created a PHP error. The whole thing is trash. I'll fix it. So, um, But um, I, I've just about completed the first version that's going to be ready soon. Um, it, making it into a WordPress theme that you could install on any WordPress site, and it creates all the structural elements. And it doesn't have to be assignments. So I call them things. So they could be tasks. They could be, like, music challenges. They could be exercises. So anything you want to create a collection of things for people to do, and within that you create categories for the things. So you could have like you know um, you know bread making in my cooking site, you know, my recipes, and and pie making and and vegetables, etc. And then the same thing happens. You know within each one of those categories, people do things like you know you know how you can make bread out of yeast and and pumpkin and and whatever. And it's the same structure that's in there. Um, so the idea is that um, you would install this theme on a WordPress site, and there's a bunch of things that you administer through the dashboard uh, on the backside. Um, and the site has all the functionality that the DS-106 assignment bank does. So then um, you're, you're a student, and you're creating an assignment. Does, does that uh, theme have affordances for um, assigning how many how credits you get for this? Is this a a hard assignment or an easy assignment or a three-star yeah. or one-star? How do they do that? If, you know, I'm trying to make it flexible. So if you want to have them rated, it's got the same. It's a plugin that we use called WP Post Ratings, and it puts the, that little star thing where anybody can click to vote. So if you want to use the star system, you install the plugin and enable it. If you don't want to use a star system, it's not in there. Um, you don't have to syndicate in the examples like we do in DS-106. So if you want a site where students just enter the link for their example through a web form that's built into there. So um, there's configuration options where you can choose um, how you want the content to come into the site. So the students can vote up the ones that they most want to do? Potentially, I mean, you could the the plugin is you know we use it as a five star rating, uh, but it enables you to have it as a you know thumbs up, thumbs down. So if you wanted to use kind of like an upvoting system, and so when you go um, and if someone puts it on Twitter, there's a demo of it right now at uh, bank.ds106.us. Um, when you go to a category of um, assignments, you can sort them by difficulty, um, sort them by the ones that have the most examples done. Um, or again, you know, my favorite one is the random. You got to live by randomness. Yeah. Well, I so I have a request, which is, uh, can you uh, uh, put in the, the the possibility for the instructor having more than one vote on on these things, just to to counterbalance the 
may be the tendency for the students to pick the assignments that are not uh, the most demanding? Yeah, well, I've had to do this in DS106 because sometimes uh, we tell students if you don't like the assignments, you know, put one in the bank and they'll sometimes I've had one student who put something really easy and rated it five stars. Um, so it'll be part of the documentation. There is a place in there where this data is stored and um, if you, it's a total number of votes, a number of people voted. So one person puts in a thing and rates it five stars, you can sort of, as God of your WordPress site, you can change that. Well, I'm looking forward to doing it myself. Well, so now, uh, Jim has spoken about an initiative at the University of Mary Washington called A Domain of One's Own, a fantastic service that I have been very happily using that started this past fall. Um, could you tell us more about the thinking behind this project and how it benefits your university students? Well, actually, you know, one of the things, I'll backtrack for a second, but I will answer that question, is the idea of the assignment bank and the early kind of thinking at DS-106 was fascinating to me because, you know, a lot of that was premised upon sites are on the web that people use on a regular basis. I mean, Alan turned me on in 2010 to Daily Shoot, which is a website where people submitted photos and learned from each other. And, you know, Martha and I were talking about Ravelry when she was designing the assignment bank as a place where people share their, you know, their kind of knits. And it was kind of a social space. And one of the things I think Alan is doing with his assignment bank is he's starting to kind of, you know, materialize how connected learning happens around these kind of assignments and things and artifacts where it's a kind of shared object of desire that people work towards and imagine alongside. And so that syndicated part of that is compelling. And part of the work we're doing here at Mary Washington now is trying to think, we have this thing called the assignment bank that was a particularly powerful element of DS-106. How do we start thinking that across disciplines? You know, and there are some historians are starting to think about uh, different ways to use that and that becomes like not only a database of stuff that's done but it becomes a place where people connect around narratives and stories and assignments so the design and architecture of the work that's been happening with DS-106 has really been informative for stuff like you know just working with faculty and disciplines and domain of one's own is interesting because it actually lives up to the vision of DS-106 is giving everyone their own space to become their own node in a class like DS-106, but writ large around UMW. So any faculty member and any student at this point can get their own domain and web hosting, and they can start building out spaces like, say, DS-106 to imagine a project. And think about what that means if not only you're a student framing your own sense of who you are and your portfolio and beyond, but if you're a faculty member and you start one imagining a particular project whether it be something like DS-106 for teaching or some other digital humanities project for uh, research or for sharing or for a collaborative hub. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to kind of empower as much of our community as possible to think critically and intervene in the web, kind of like we had all decided was crucial with DS-106 back in 2010, 2011. So I always think that the main of one's own was really greatly indebted to the work that happened with DS-106 as a kind of model for what we could probably, you know, abstract more broadly uh, for an entire campus. And the work Tim Owens and Martha Burtis have done, taking this idea of the syndication hub, which means all the disparate work happening in all these different faculty and students' site, and bringing it into a kind of syndicated space of community, 
is remarkable. If you go to community.umwdomains.com, what you start to see is students and faculty together sharing and thinking and blogging their educational experience. You know, I always quote uh, Gardner Campbell in this moment. It's exposing the life of the mind of UMW. It's actually showing people what the process of thinking and learning at UMW looks like more broadly. And, you know, there's been a lot of bemoaning that, you know, faculty and students don't blog enough. Or if they blog, it's always like assignment six, assignment ten. You know, like here's what you need to do. I think slowly, and it's been a long kind of road, we're starting to embed within our culture this idea that this blog is a reflection of you as an entity and a node on the web. And UMW is just one place, a very important place, where that contacts home. And so UMW Domains has been great, or Domain of One's Own has been great to kind of take the philosophy of DS-106 and try and see that as much possibly across our entire community. And thanks to the work of you know, Tim Owens and Martha Burtis in particular, uh, that community has really taken hold, um, and it's been amazing. It's well, would like you repeat again the URL for people who, who want to take advantage? Yeah, of Yeah, I recommend. Okay. It's community, so like community, what would the community think? Community.umwdomains.com, and I highly recommend it. And they've built down features like a directory. You can see the stats, like who's using it, from what discipline, what year. Um, there's a calendar, which I think is amazing, that visually displays the work that's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, it's just, it's just really, I think, uh, the maturation of work that we've been doing for almost a decade. And it's really crystallized so beautiful in that site to not just say we're giving out domains and web hosting, but to say we're creating a community around that. And it's that's almost the like, key. It's like a DS-106 of DS-106s in, in a way because... I mean, you, you're going to get these rich pockets of, of activity within a course, but it's going to spill over. And, you know, what I've taken away from hearing Jim and, and his crew talk about it, and, and um, like, just having the domain of one's own isn't enough. That um, sort of the, the emphasis of the first uh, experience and activity being driven by meaningful activities in a course um, students are going to then begin to discover that they, oh, wow, I've got this, people responding to me, and uh, when I write this way, um, it feels effective. And then, then they'll probably start figuring out, how do I use this outside of my course? Um, and that's always been the thing, is how do students see the importance of this digital space once the course is open or, or over? Well, you know, in, in my experience, um, emulating a DS-106 in, in an, an open course, after a while, the students begin to find their voice. Some of them, you can clearly see they're going to carry this beyond the, 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 the term. Um, I've got a question from the live stream, which is, uh, how much of DS-106 depends on WordPress categorization? <laughs> I, I was looking at that, uh, and I, I probably guessed what, what the, their understanding, so, or what they're trying to say. Uh, to a large degree, I mean, categorization in WordPress means how you organize all the stuff that comes in. So. Um, I mean, we use the site in two ways. I mean, we put the course content on there. So uh, we use categories to define, like, the course materials for a particular uh, section that we might be teaching. When all the uh, content comes in through this plugin called Feed WordPress, um, we suck in all the tags and categories that, that people use. Um, so you can sort of be able to trace everyone who's used the tag Fat Cats and see all the posts related to that. But more importantly, um, when I'm teaching a, a section, um, 
uh, and all my students are subscribing, when they enroll, uh, they pick what section they're doing, and that adds a tag to everything that they post. So we're able to have this giant thing we call the flow, which is just everything coming into DS106. And the flow will knock you over. You can't stand there and look at it. Um, but I'm able to create separate pages that show just the flow from this section that I'm teaching right now. And historically, we have the past flows from the, the summer class that Jim taught last year. So um, it's using the tags and categories uh, within uh, the WordPress structure itself uh, to, to a large degree. And that's how things, um, it sounds kind of wild, but you know, DS106 is the main syndication hub. Everybody's blogs go into there. Uh, when uh, Howard, when you do the assignment for making a minimal movie poster, you use particular posts or tags on your post. Goes into DS106 and then it gets resyndicated to the assignment bank, so it kind of travels twice, and then it knows to stick your example right into that assignment, um, and that's carried upon this uh, the it's it's taxonomy in a technical term of the way WordPress organizes things um, underneath the hood. Um, Tags and categories are actually the same kind of data, um, but they make it work in two different ways. One of the things, too, we've, I mean, in answer to that question, on a different note is, so at Bear Washington, so we had UMW Blogs, which is a blogging platform we've been using for near on eight years now. And, you know, we always tried to create this sense of community that we got with UMW Domains through WordPress multi-site. But one of the things we realized, and Mark had talked about this extensively, when we abstracted out from UMW blogs, was that with UMW domains, people were installing their own applications. Now, most of them were WordPress, but you could have Omeka, you could have Drupal, you could have a BB Press, you could have all these different applications. And one of the things that we started to do is grab the information application-specific. So tag the application, tag the user, tag the... And so we could actually set up our directory based on metadata attached at the point of installation. So we weren't depending so heavily upon WordPress anymore. And it was a really liberating moment for us, because while WordPress has been unbelievably important to all the work we've done over the decade, I don't want to you know, downplay that or ignore that, the syndication hub we have right now in WordPress at that community that umwdomains.com is actually abstractable out from that. Right? You could have it do it in WordPress, or you could have it do it in some other application. It's the idea that this layer becomes a layer of aggregation that tags and is able to filter, um, but is not dependent upon any one tool. It's just dependent upon an RSS feed. And that's always been this kind of mythic vision that you know, uh, Darcy Norman and Brian Lamb and all these crazy cats, Alan, were always talking about EduGlue. <laughs> EduGlue was the idea that any application you have, as long as it had a feed, it could not only pull into a common kind of community green space, but it also could be searchable and filterable. And that would be one way to expose uh, the thinking of a particular community at a particular point in time. And I do truly believe that, thanks to Tim and Martha, we kind of we cracked that nut. Like, I feel like we have EduGlue now. It's specific to our community, but I really feel like we have a situation now where faculty and students, if they want to see what's going on at UMW, the website's just a brochure. They come to community.umw domains and they see teaching and learning in the wild. So, well, following up on that, what, what do you think are some of the most significant challenges you faced and, and how, did you, how did you solve them or 
address them in, in DS-106. It's well, a and I'm in blocks too much. That's the real challenge. <laughs> if he stopped blogging, it wouldn't be a challenge. It's a pretty intense experience to uh, to teach it. That, that's one of the things that doesn't scale, you know. You know, I mean, Jim used to teach like I don't know how he did like classes with 37 students. Um, and, you know, I mean, trying to follow and give constructive feedback, and that's something that, that that we strongly believe in. That that you know, you don't want to just say like nice post or great assignment. You know, and, and I mean, Jim is like he's an artist of comments, so he's not just rea you know reacting; he's contributing, you know, and he, and bringing in new information. So, um, taking that um, ability and finding a way to give constructive comments um, takes a lot of time, and that's where the open community has helped that a lot too, because now it's not just dependent on me to give my students feedback. I've got these people all around the world who who might um, give feedback to my students. Um, so that's where the opening up has has helped out uh, quite a bit. But you know, I couldn't teach this class to a hundred students or a thousand students and give the same attention that I do uh, to the twenty-five. Um, so we don't try, and, and to me, that is one of the differences between the MOOCs. When we don't, we give a different experience to the registered students than to the open online. I mean, they don't get the direct attention. They don't, they don't get the grade and and etc. You know, and what they get is really more dependent about what they're willing to, to throw into the mix. So it's not uh, a replication of the uh, experience on out there. Um, you know, the challenges so you know are, are the time, um, and you know, and the other piece of that is that you know we, we believe that as teachers we should be trying to do the assignments too to model it. Not to say this is the way to do the assignment, but when students see that the instructor is in there creating an animated GIF at the same time you are. It changes that, that that dynamic a lot of bit, you know, and, and you know our our colleague Barbara Ganley was doing that back in two thousand one in the early blog days, um, and it was brilliant. She was writing alongside her students, and I think that's that's a subtle thing that we don't really talk about that much that that, that influence of teaching um, and being with your students. You're still you're still the teacher. You're still in charge. You're still giving the grades, and they're looking to you for direction. Um, but when they see you with your your fingers in the mix, uh, I think it changes. A lot of that element. You know, I, I think it's really important to tell instructors that it helps a lot if you personally love to participate in online uh, discussion because uh, you've got to model and you've got to encourage, and it helps if you can you can comment on your students' first blog posts. So this is not less work than than teaching other kinds of 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 courses. I guess that's the mildest way I could say it. There's, you are going to put in more time communicating with your students outside of the classroom and if you love doing that as all three of us do then yes it takes your time but it's it's really a pleasure to see the students blossom and to offer them an experience that they don't often get in their relationship with the professor but I, I do think that there is a certain amount of illusion out there of, of people who think that well we're going to kind of we're gonna use technology to automate the the process and this is going to be easier really isn't uh, easier um, but in that regard excuse me in that regard what advice would you have for other higher ed practitioners who, who might want to emulate uh, what DS106 has done one of the things I've learned a lot from it um, I agree with everything Alan said. I mean, the time is intense. And I was sometimes when I taught the class when I should not. That didn't happen. Um, and that's that's really it, and that's on me because I should know. By that point, I should have known. But at the other the other thing is 
since doing DS-106, I haven't really taught alone ever again. Meaning, I had someone who took a class, and this might get to Monica Hardy's question that I'm reading in the chat, is I think people take DS-106 as open online contributors because they want to tap into a network, and they want to actually collaborate on projects, and I think it's that paying forward. When they collaborate, usually people collaborate back. I mean, I think DS-106 is a broader, has a pretty good track record of keeping people connected and attached to other projects and other possibilities, and this kind of leads to other things. For example, Paul Bond, who was taking DS-106, he took a bunch of um, courses. We just started collaborating on other courses, and he was into it, so now we're co-teachers on like three classes at this point. And that's not because I had some diabolical plan, or he did. It's because we were just working together. We had similar interests, and we actually built a whole other series of classes on that. And I think that's an interesting part of an open course like that, even for people who are not taking it for credit, it's a way, you know, maybe that not only, you know, show off your skills and show other people what's possible, but, you know, in the case of Tim Owens, right? Tim Owens took an open course, DS-106 in 2011, you know, and he rocked the house so much that we were like, hey, are you, you want a job? <laughs> um, so there's other possibilities um, around that, and I think to Monica's question to some degree, it's like anything. It's like when you go on Twitter and you start following and interacting with people um, in that way, you know, you start creating relationships, and I think DS-106 has a pretty good history of creating deep relationships across continents around ideas of both openness, around ideas of educational technology, around ideas of the apocalypse and what's going to follow the apocalypse, right? Like, and the art sometimes speaks to that far more poignantly than the politics. And that's what I love about DS-106 is it's not, it couldn't be politicized like EduPub. Because it was just letters and numbers. And it was just people doing it because they wanted to. There was no you have to be here. There was no finish the course. There was no eat your oatmeal. It was like you want to make something cool, do it. You don't, fine. I love it's, that. It's like a, it's like, it's honestly, like you sense that something is happening. You know, for Monica, like, I don't know. We can only guess why people, you know, happen. They fall into DS-106 sometimes almost accidentally. And some people just, they, they do the drive-bys, as we talk about. That looks interesting. And then some people, they get they, they get sucked in. And, and a part of it is that, um, you know, the best things that happen to DS-106 is where people find out things they can do that they didn't think they could do. Like, a lot of my students, they always come in and they say, oh, I'm going to hate audio. I hate doing audio. Um, because they think it's all about the sound of their voice. And then they find out about the magic of audio, that it's it's richly layered, and what you can do with sound effects, and making footsteps by patting on your table, and, and creating a feeling of suspense. Um, so, I mean, to, what people get out of DS-106 is, is kind of, on again, on the surface. The silly assignments don't do anything, but this kind of constant practice of trying something new, of coming up with a creative... Um, interpretation, and that's the beauty of uh, the thing we developed as the daily create. Something small you can try every day. You don't get graded. It doesn't matter what you do, um, but, you know, you know, tell, tell, you know, make up a haiku about what's in your refrigerator. Right? Okay, I can do that in a couple minutes. What do I get out of that? Well, I get a little distraction. I get to say, well, there's a piece of old celery in my refrigerator, and, and then what can I do with that? And then, oh, look what Jim did with that. He told a great haiku. Um, so, um, yeah, I get a lot of, of inspiration from um, my my hero is Ira Glass, and and he talks um, brilliantly 
about, you know, he didn't start out with that ability to do This American Life. He said he worked in radio for eight years, and he says, I sucked. He said, I was horrible. And he says, you know, to get good at something, and it's not the Malcolm Gladwell, you just bang a drum for 10,000 hours and you get to be a good drummer. Um, it's this iterative process of experimenting and trying and failing. And DS-106 gives people kind of a, a, a place to do that where there's no consequence. And, and people worry so much about this consequence about, like, not looking good or not coming off academic. And, yeah, maybe it's the fun carnival atmosphere. Maybe that's it. Well, expand a little bit on the Daily Create for people who may not have heard about it before. And, and also, can you use the Daily Create with something other than digital storytelling? Could you do it with American history or um, chemistry? Uh, pe people do these. I mean, there's all kinds of daily challenges. I mean, I've been doing the Daily Photo Challenge. People do daily crafts. Uh, ben Ryan's wife, uh, Nikki, she was doing a craft thing. Um, and as Jim mentioned, the inspiration came from this site called The Daily Shoot, which I got hooked on because these photographers, every day they put out an assignment for people to say, like, take a picture dominated by the, the, the color blue or take a creative picture that tells a story about your spoon. Um, and the whole idea was it was just a small enough thing uh, to get you focused on something to try something new with photography. And, and Jim and I, we, we used it a lot in the beginning of DS-106 because it was a great introduction for people to learn how to um, communicate visually. Um, so you try different things with your camera. And then the site went away in the fall of 2011. And um, a bunch of people said, what are we going to do? And why don't we build our own? And so we started brainstorming. Um, and I think that was the week or, or the couple weeks before I was actually coming out to work at Mary Washington. And Tim Owens just built the whole thing. Like, like uh, out of WordPress theme and kind of putting together some some bits. So um, uh, I, again, that's another site where I do want to be able to uh, take what we have built in WordPress and then be able to put it into uh, a more of a template structure where you don't have to have um, daily challenges around visual, audio, and video, but it could be about other categories of, of things that that you want to design. So that, that's next on my plate um, to do as, as a project um, just because I, I really want to do it, not because anybody's telling me to do it. <laughs> you know, for, for people who are not so familiar with DS-106, maybe it, it would help for us to, to list all of the different elements. So <laughs> everyone's got a blog and it's aggregated and there's a, there's a, a hashtag that people use on on Twitter, and you've got the assignment bank, and you've got the daily create. You've got um, a radio station. I often see uh, something on Twitter late at night. If pe people are putting things on the radio station all the time, what what else? Uh, yeah, there's the. Um, I built something that we called the remix machine. It's, it's kind of goofy, but um, it's the idea of taking the assignments that are in the assignment bank. And putting a twist on them, so we have a thing we call the the card. So um, uh, it's this is one of Tom Wilbur's ideas. Like, what if you had like a way for people to take an assignment and to interpret differently? So um, you get a random card on assignment. So it would say introduce Uncle Bubba with the Fat Cats assignment, and it's kind of playful. But it's the idea about again, how do you interpret a creative challenge? Um, one of the ones that we don't, and Jim loves to talk about, is is Inspire, which is a brilliant idea that came from students, and it's inspire.ds106.us. And the premise is 
there's so many things that happen to Data Center Sticks. How do you know the good stuff? Um, so it, it came from two of the students in spring 2012 to build a site where participants in DS106 nominate the work of others that inspire them. So it's a site where um, if I like the, the animated GIF that Howard did, I can say, um, not only I can put it on there on the site, I can say why I chose it as inspirational. Um, so that's a piece that doesn't get a whole lot of attention and, and probably um, could use a little bit of recrafting, but um, I think that idea about um, in a community, uh, not just saying, look, here's my best work, but what does it mean when I say, here is Jim's best work, and this is why I think his work is, is really good. And that, that's a powerful amplifier in, in a community environment, which, which I'm sure you know, Howard. What, what are the next uh, innovations and experiments uh, you're, you're cooking up for ES106? <laughs> Uh, I'm teaching a course that starts next week uh, for it's a graduate certificate program at George Mason University and um, it's a little bit different because these are grad students and they're also all um, they work for a major consulting firm so they're all people who work on the road and they're in a business environment so I'm trying to they, they, they wanted me to bring in sort of a class in storytelling and sort of get it to apply to the work that people do um, outside of an academic atmosphere, so it's going to be an interesting exercise. It's an open course. Um, it, it'll be on the DS106 site. Um, there's pieces of it already there. So again, we want people who want to follow along. This one's a little bit shorter. It's seven weeks, and um, it's only two credits. So there's some things that are pruned down. So it's a little bit uh, of a, a leaner experience. And, and probably the, one of the most interesting things was last fall. Um, there was no course scheduled at UMW, and um, I had this idea because for the open participants, they're always dependent on someone teaching a course that they could follow along with to get the open experience. And I said, well, we have like, you know, like eight different iterations of DS106 that I've taught, that Jim's taught. What if we just package that all up into a series of assignments that will come out every week and we can have an open course with no teacher? And then someone, I think it was Todd Conaway, said the headless DS106. And all of a sudden, we had all these pictures coming out of decapitated statues and, and things like that. So, But that was the headless course experience. And it was great because we had, I mean, 60 people signed up. Probably half of them participated to um, some degree. And, and the most interesting one was a woman named Rochelle Lockridge um, who took Jim's summer course. Um, and she taught that version of DS-106 inside the corporate firewall at 3M to employees of 3M. Um, as an experience for them to practice their creative skills. Um, and it kind of turned my mind inside out, like, that's not an open course. I mean, we can't see their work. But she made it work, and, and it's really kind of made me realize that there's, like, these layers of openness. So it, it's an open community with inside 3M, and she's like this conduit that connects these two uh, different universes together. And it was, it was amazing, the work that she did in a completely different um, kind of venue than we do DS-106. You know, something that occurred to me while you were saying that was uh, it reminded me of the, the hole-in-the-wall experiment, the, the uh, setting up a, a computer in a, a, a poor section of a city in India and just letting the, the, the kids gravitate to it and figure out what it was and, and do it themselves. Can you imagine having just kind of a hole-in-the-wall um, open learning environment that you, you set up with no agenda and see what you know, like putting a petri dish out and see what uh, what accumulates there and starts evolving. 
I think that's what the main DS106 website is. Because when you look at it, if if someone says, hey, look at DS106, and you go there, you're probably like, what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me uh, in terms of future iterations of DS106 and what it might look like is an, a kind of ARG version, like uh, the Summer of Oblivion with uh, uh, Dr. Oblivion kind of playing off a theme, and the themed one with Twilight Zone. And, I, I mean, the headless stuff is compelling to me, but I really, it would be hard for me to do DS-106 if it wasn't part of a class because of time and other obligations. Like, I would need to be in that experience. Like, I can drive by it, but the idea of coming up with a theme-based vision for DS-106 that I could follow through on. So one of them was Twilight Zone. Another one might be based on a TV series or a show, just kind of a theme that people could play with. But the other idea would be have students actually take the class as characters. And Todd Conway had talked about this early on, where it's kind of like these Dungeons and Dragons characters, or you know, people take on a particular frame, and you kind of set a loose uh, framework, and you have people inhabit within it. But for me, the single most exciting version of DS106 was the Summer of Oblivion, where folks here at Mary Washington basically started writing. We were script writing where the course would go, and we had no idea. And the students basically, you know, because of the course and because of the narrative. You know, they usurped us, they took over, they created DS-107, and there is this kind of unbelievable um, play at work uh, that I've been constantly trying to recapture um, <laughs> because it was, but you can't, because it was a moment. And I have to understand that, but the idea of that course was that it was more a kind of experience that everyone was writing. And uh, that was a, an interesting experience to me that I want to try and, Recapture, but you know, the more I try and engineer it, the probably further and further away from it I'll ever get. Which is the difficulty too, because once you feel like you've done something, it's like, yeah, I can do this again, and you can't. You realize the limits also of this space. So, well, openness to serendipity seems to be one of the most important elements. Yeah, I mean, really, and the fact is, is every day you don't realize what will happen next. Like. Even when I teach a class right now, the open internet class, a lot of it, I think any person who teaches a class recognizes it, is you come out of the class beating yourself up. That class, well, I missed this and that. I couldn't figure this out. I couldn't figure that out. But as seems to always happen, something happens that gets me excited again. Something happens. And I think part of what happens that gets me excited is other people fuel into it. They feed it. They help me see something else. I've been in that dark space where you're just teaching a class by yourself and it spirals down and down. And I've been further away from that space the more I've let other people in. And they've helped me kind of see uh, the real possibilities of that. And DS-106, personally, when Alan came to Mary Wash and we were co-teaching the class, when I was co-teaching it in 2011 with, Mary, with uh, Martha Burrs, I mean, the idea of us working alongside of each other was really what changed my vision of teaching beyond any technology, like it means to teach and how much more you can get out of it if you can collaborate in these ways, not only with one or two people, but in some cases we were collaborating with 20, 30, 40 um, at a moment. I mean, Grant Potter building a radio station, right? Uh, noise professor doing these crazy photoshops on the fly that really engaged people. You know, people like Downs would come in and comment on students' work. I mean, that means a lot. And it changes my whole idea of what we're doing in this space um, is about people 
I think that's still what the MOOCs seem to miss. And not always, and I think a lot of them, you know, are working towards that, but, you know, Alan said it best with the way DS106 works in theory and in practice is it's a fractal experience where those comments and those people coming in and that network that moves well beyond any limits of the beginning and the after. And that's why the headless course is so kind of demonstrative of the spirit is that it's not limited to any one 15-week experience. And the four life thing, which is kind of jokey, is also this idea that the course itself you know, has a soul. And the soul is not limited to the idea of you know, an assignment or a version of it. It's actually about people communicating around what teaching will look like and what it could look like. And none of us know what exactly that is. And we're trying to build the map as we go. And that's a really fun thing. And I would hate for it to ever lose that magic. You know what I mean? Because I think so much we've kind of packaged up, you know, the idea of online learning as a particular flavor called the MOOC. And that's lost a lot of its kind of venom and teeth because we've all kind of framed it out as what it should be before we even experiment with what it might be. You know, I'm, I'm no longer surprised when an, an hour goes by. Quickly <laughs> yeah. So th thank you, Jim and Alan, for a great conversation. Yeah, uh, by tomorrow, we should have a full recording of this webinar and other curated content around this up on www.connectedlearning.tv that you can share with your networks. I will share with mine. This uh, wraps up our first webinar of this month-long series, but that doesn't mean that our conversations uh, e even have to pause here. We encourage everyone to keep the energy going by using the Twitter hashtag Reclaim Open, and by getting involved in the ongoing conversations within the Connected Learning Google Plus community. If you'd like to learn more about the exciting work that DS106 is doing, you can check out their website at ds106.us, and um, the hashtag DS106 on Twitter, that's how I found out about it. Uh, join us again next week as we chat with folks from FemTechNet, a network of scholars and artists engaged with issues related to technology, feminism, and gender. Uh, visit www.connectedlearning.tv for more info on that as well. So thanks, guys, and I will see you in the future. Take care. Thank you, Howard. Thanks, Howard.